If I did not get the chance to meet you, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, welcome, because today we are launching a brand new series in the book of Leviticus. And if you know anything about it, you're probably thinking, what have I gotten myself into? Uh, what I want to do before we, we jump into the text is I, I want you to just go with me for a moment. I want you to, to imagine. I want you to imagine that you are a stranger and you come upon the camp of the nation of Israel some 1,400 years before Jesus was even born. As you approach, you're, you're, you're going to notice probably first the camp layout. And the camp would be organized in a specific pattern with a large tent at the center. And from a distance, something strange seems to be going on in the middle of the camp. But you can't quite see the details yet. The closer you get to the center tent the stranger things become, you begin to notice a lot of priests wearing really pretty unique garments engaged in various rituals and duties. The really distinct smell of animals, barn, and smoke hang in the air. And you find yourself actually very thankful for the smoke because it covers up the other smells. As you get closer still, something you can't quite explain seems to be happening around the center tent at night from far away, you could see a globe, but from a distance, you didn't quite know what it was. You assumed it was a, maybe a large bonfire. It's daytime now, and there is a sight you literally cannot explain. There's a monument-like cloud emerging from the center tent and going up high enough to where everyone encamped around it can see it. And it's different from the smoke. It is distinctly a cloud. Now, you don't, you don't say anything. But the, the closer you get, the more anxious your body becomes. You intuitively know that this cloud is dangerous. And you are more than happy to keep your distance. You finally arrive to the action. You are close enough to the center, to center tent to see the details. But it, it's like the cloud won't let you come closer. Outside of this tent was a sight you have never seen before. Over the years, you've seen animals sacrificed and butchered. Heck, you've seen adults and even babies sacrificed alive, but you have never seen this many of anything sacrificed all at once. And you rightly ask, so what's the special occasion? And somebody responds, there is none. This is every day. And then with a smile, they say, you should see the Day of Atonement. Go read Leviticus 16. And you're in shock. The priests aren't just covered in blood. They are literally throwing blood. The grounds are covered in blood. The men walking away are covered in blood. The tent is covered in blood. And people are lining up with more animals. Everyone seems to be a weird combination of both joyful and solemn at the same time. People walk away happy, even laughing. The entire experience, it grinds you, and honestly, not because of the blood, because you're used to killing what you eat. You've seen blood. You're upset because of the waste. Animals in the ancient Near East are currency. And these people are not rich. They live in tents, and even their God doesn't have a permanent home. And these people are literally burning money. And not just any money, their most valuable currency, their firstborn bulls, 
sheep, and goats. And a, a question blurts out of your mouth. What kind of God requires this level of blood and currency? And why are these people happily and willingly giving it? Welcome to the book of Leviticus. It only gets stranger from here. Open up your Bibles. Go to Leviticus chapter 1. And in the Christian Bible, we call this Leviticus, but in the, in the Jewish Bible, it actually has a different name. It is titled actually after the first word in Hebrew of the book. And the, the word is vaikra. And what this means is simply, and he called. And so Leviticus describes in detail what it meant for the Jews to be called not just out of the world, but actually called into the very presence of God. Now, before uh, Jesus, um, humans everywhere had a significant problem. And, and here's the problem. God is devastatingly holy, which is fine if you're holy. The unfortunate thing is that there's no human being ever except for Jesus Christ who has ever been holy enough to approach the very presence of God. And so what happens when a sinner and a holy God mix is who wins? the holy God. And who is incinerated? The sinner. And God knows this. And so there's distance between God and man. And actually, so much of the book of Leviticus is actually helping people before Jesus Christ figure out how do I approach a holy God as a sinner and not die in the process. So God creates a system that allowed the Jewish nation, distinct from every other nation on the planet, to follow a set of rites and rituals that allowed them actually to have physical proximity to God in a way that nobody else in the world ever could. All right, so why are we teaching on Leviticus? Uh, Some people consider this the most difficult book in the Bible to preach. You're going to see why just after Leviticus 1. And uh, many people would say, how can a Christian ever apply anything from the book of Leviticus? After all, the old covenant has been made obsolete by the blood of Christ and the new covenant, all of its rules and regulations and restrictions, etc. So here are four just big reasons in the front end why we want to preach on the book of Leviticus. Number one, Leviticus is literally the foundation for the New Testament. Uh, it is referenced in the New Testament over a hundred times. And if you are really going to understand the origins and the nature of Jesus, the cross, mediation, substitutionary sacrifice, all of them are actually rooted in the book of Leviticus. This is where all of these ideas are rooted and come from. Number two, Leviticus calls us to a much deeper faith. Uh, It calls us to a level of holiness and personal generosity that the average evangelical American Christian is going to be very uncomfortable with. Uh, Number three, uh, all scripture is profitable, right? So when, when, when the Apostle Paul wrote that in the New Testament, he was referring to the Old Testament. Does that apply to the book of Leviticus also? Absolutely. And so one of the things that I would love to do is when you do your annual Bible reading plan, I'd love for you not to give up in February when it tells you to start reading the book of Leviticus and you're like, I'm done, I'm out. Um, I, I hope to demystify the book and help give you kind of handles on what's really going on here because it actually is pretty accessible if you understand it. I think number four, and this, this for me is probably one of the most encouraging ones, that Leviticus reminds us that no matter how much you have screwed up, there is always a way back to God. I need you to consider the context, because Leviticus just didn't pop out of nowhere. It actually follows Exodus. And so what's happening is the, is the Israelites are camped at Mount Sinai for, for about a year. But do you know what just happened before these laws and regulations are given? Moses comes down the mountain with Mount Sinai, with the Ten Commandments, and the people are reveling in sexual debauchery that would even make the most progressive among you blush. 
It was evil and disgusting. They cheated on God. They betrayed him. They broke his laws, broke his rules, and God should have obliterated them on the spot. Instead, uh, he makes a series of moves and then teaches the people how to actually build a tent or a tabernacle is what it's called, where God will reside so that the people can learn to come near to God. What's amazing is that uh, the book of Leviticus it should have been non-existent. He should have just been, I'm done with all of you. But instead he says, I want to be with you. I want to be in relationship with you. And before Jesus and the old covenant, these are the rules and the regulations that are going to make this happen. So our first series is five weeks long. And what it does is it follows the first five chapters of Leviticus. And each chapter uh, represents one of the five Jewish Old Testament offerings. And so Leviticus chapter one, it's the first of these. It's called the burnt offering. So let's look at Leviticus chapter one, verse one. Here we go. The Lord He called Moses, and he spoke to him from the tent. Now, what happened right prior to this at the end of Exodus is they finished the tent, and the glory of God filled the tent. God's presence was there, and immediately God calls out from the tent, and here's what he says. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Now, verse one to two is kind of setting, uh, setting up the next five different offerings. And we find in verses one and two is it's alluding to what we'll just call the offering principle. In the Old Testament, anybody who comes to God's presence for any reason must bring a valuable offering. This was standard protocol if you are going to enter into God's presence under the old covenant laws and regulations, you have to bring an offering that is of great value. Now, the only reason this exists is because you're going to see as this, as this chapter and the next five chapters unfold is that we somehow need to be purified before we can enter into the presence of a holy God And this was the process by which God mandated this. This was not God being greedy. It is God being merciful. It's God providing a way so that as we get closer in proximity physically to him, that we can be purified so that we are not destroyed the closer that we get. Verse three then, here's what happens, is is it's gonna deal specifically now with the burnt offering. Uh, the burnt offering is what's called a free will offering, meaning it's not mandatory. Anybody can give it if you want. If you don't want to give a free will offering, don't give a free will offering. The burnt offering is optional. There will be some Jews who spend their entire life and they will never ever once give a burnt offering. Now, before we get into the what and the how, we have to answer a bigger question, which is why? Like, what would motivate any singular person if they are not mandated to give an expensive, valuable offering to the Lord? What would possibly motivate somebody to give a burnt offering? And the answer actually lies in its name. So unlike the other offerings, here's what would happen in the burnt offering. 100% of it would be incinerated and consumed by fire there would be nothing left. And the other offerings, you're going to see that the priests get some, and sometimes the people get to take some home and have a big party. And uh, Each of the five offerings have a different function and purpose, but this is the only one where every single ounce of the animal was going to be consumed. And the complete consumption of every part, it served as a, as a metaphor for the giver. The, the burnt offering was a symbol 
of my complete devotion to God. So here's why somebody would give a burnt offering. They wanted to come before God and say, I am all yours. My life, my resources, my children, everything. Everything I have is yours. I mean, you, you can imagine, some of you know this, you came to Christ at a young age, you grew up in the church, and, and then sometimes something hits you where you realize you had not given God your whole heart. I mean, you believed, you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but if you're, if you're being honest, there are really specific parts of your heart that, that you're like, Lord, you, you actually don't have permission to touch this. What, what I found as a, a youth pastor is very interesting is that for girls, um, typically between eighth and 10th grade, 7th and ninth grade, that range, um, this is when they would have like this realization, like God and I are not okay. I am a half-hearted Christian. And, and developmentally, something really happens around that time frame for girls. With boys, what I found, it was almost always 11th or 12th grade. And 11th or 12th grade was a time when I just saw young men realize, oh my gosh, I'm a hypocrite. I'm living a double life. I'm one way over here and I'm another way with God. And there's something about this time frame where it's like the brain develops to the point where we realize I need to be a whole person and not a segregated person. I either need to give God all of me or, or nothing here. This is not right, this duplicity. And it's not the way I was, I was made to live. And so something would happen. Like you get to a point where you realize God, I, I actually have been holding back, and, and this is going to be a line of demarcation. From this point forward, I am all yours. You have every, every bit of me. And, and, and there would be different things that bring people to this point. By and large, you would emerge out of a season of spiritual apathy. Maybe you, you emerge out of a season of like really willful, consistent sin and struggle. Uh, maybe you just lost something really significant, and you realize your life is not grounded uh, maybe you're watching a friend's life and you've watched them walk away from the Lord and you see the destruction in their life and you're like, I, I actually don't want that, but if I, if I keep doing what I'm doing, that's gonna be, it's gonna be the result. And what I love is that God designed right off the bat, Leviticus 1, first offering, anybody who wants to come home and be devoted to me and be made right with me, I'm all yours. Tell them, anybody, you, you might have been circumcised as a Jew. You might be in the covenant. You might be going to whatever regularly. You might do all the family stuff. But anybody whose heart isn't fully devoted to me, if they're ready, here's the process. Look at verse three. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. All right, question, does the Lord want to, in his holiness and glory, incinerate sinners? The answer is no. What the Lord wants is for people to draw near to him and not be destroyed. But, but there's, a, there's something really important. When you come to him, what kind of offering are you bringing? And I want to just give you the, the general vibe of the first fruits or the free will offering or this offering here. God expects your first your best, and your most valuable. Why would God expect my first? If, I, if I'm trying to make my heart right with the Lord, I'm coming back to you, God, and he gives this process, and he's like, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna reconcile with me, if you're gonna come to me, and you're gonna be like, I'm all in, why does he want my first? Why does he want my best? And why does he require my most valuable? I'll give you a few reasons. Number one, because at the end of the day, I would have nothing if it weren't for him. 
Like I would have absolutely nothing. Every single breath I have hinges on his will, period. That's it. So you get to this point where you realize literally everything I have is from you. And, and number two, because as my king, he deserves my best. And as my king, he gave me the expectation, this is actually what I want you to bring. I want you to bring your first. I want you to bring your best. And I want you to bring your most valuable. There, there's a third thing here. And I think God is actually genius in the way he goes about this. That you do this as a declaration of your confidence in God's future provision. You get to this point where you're like, wow, if I have 15 bowls, like I have 15 bowls, yes, probably because you worked hard, but let me tell you this, if the Lord didn't want you to have it, you wouldn't have it. There are people who, man, they don't even try and they make money left and right. And there are people who work their rears off and they have great ideas and then nothing happens. And at some point you step back and you say, it really is the providence and sovereignty of God that allows me to prosper or holds me back. And the Lord is free, is he not, to do whatever he wants with anybody. The Lord can make one person successful and wealthy. The other person can, can, can hold somebody back and keep things normal. But the Lord has permission to do whatever he wants, perk of being God. But here's what we do. We, we step back and we say, everything I have is from him. All my past resources, they're from him. Everything in my present is from him. And, and when the person would give their first and their best and their most valuable, here's what they're saying. I totally trust God to provide for my future because he's never, ever let me down. Never, ever. And so God would structure this in a way that would really reveal their heart in the process. And you're going to watch as this whole thing unfolds. You're going to see that the heart takes center stage. Look at verse 4. What I want you to do in verse 4 and ongoing is I want you to pay attention um, to who does what. Okay? So the one offering um, is just described with the word he, and it's going to be contrasted with the priests who have their own set of responsibilities. So he, this is the one offering. You, you, you're coming to the Lord to offer a burnt offering. You want to be all in. You're like, God, I want to devote all of my life to you. It says he, the person bringing this, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he, this is still, this is you. Like you want to do this. This is what he's expecting. He shall kill the bull before the Lord. That's your job. And Aaron's sons, the priests, well, their, their job is different. They shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So the one bringing the offering, before he kills the animal, he takes his hand, he puts it on his head. Now, we don't know what they would say. It's expected that uh, there would be a time of confession and prayer. And he would pause and this would be an unforgettable lesson for every person offering a burnt offering. The cost of my blessing is another's blood. And, and, and this is hard. Because all the blessings that this person's gonna receive when they walk out, fully devoted to God, deeper into the presence of God, reconciled with God, all of the blessings that they walk away with all come at a cost. And the cost is someone else's blood. And, and I think what God wants the person to know is your sin, it costs something. Like you might walk away and act like it's no big deal, but, but before God, your sin matters and it is expensive. Your sin separates you from God and reconciliation back to God requires blood. By the laying out of the hands, the offerer was saying something like this, just as this animal is wholly given to God on the altar, so I wholly give myself to the Lord. 
Uh, verse six and seven, they delineate further who does what with what part of the sacrifice. Verse six says, he, that's the one offering, okay? So your job isn't just to kill the animal. It says, he shall flay, which basically means you butcher, remove the skin, separate it. He shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. You're the butcher here. In verse 7, it says, the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put the fire on the altar because the altar is, is in front of you and the closer you get to the altar, the closer you are to the proximity of God into the, into the tent. And so like you can't get that close. Only the priests can get that close. So you do the sacrificing, you do the butchering, you do the flaying, you give all of the meat, if you will, to the priest and the priest goes in front of you and represents you as a mediator to God. And there's another unforgettable lesson here because you know you can't go where that priest has gone because that priest has purified and cleansed himself to the point where he can actually get closer to the presence of God without being destroyed by the glory and the holiness of God. And here, here's the second principle that this person who's butchering this animal is gonna learn very personally. Unforgiven sinners need a mediator to represent us to God. Now, now th- these Jews 1,400 years before Christ came had zero idea what this was actually pointing to. They did not understand the idea that um, this was going to be fulfilled as God became flesh in Jesus Christ, where God was not just the mediatory priest, he was also the offering, he was also the sacrifice, he was all in one. He was the priest, he was the mediator, and he was the offering. They had zero idea of this, and I am so glad, and I hope as you hear kind of how weird and disgusting some of this is, your gratitude that Jesus Christ died once for all, so that no sacrifices would ever have to be made again. Praise God. Amen, Village Church. You are under a new covenant, and the blood of Christ was the once-for-all sacrifice to end this entire system so that we never, ever have to go back to it. There's more. Look at verse 8. Aaron's sons, the priest, they get to arrange the pieces, yay, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire, on the altar. But, but we're not done here because your job isn't over. You don't just get to butcher it now and walk away. Verse 9 says, but its entrails and its legs, he, the one offering, shall wash with water. You must dismember this animal yourself because it was your sin that required this blood. The animal is dead and broken for one reason. My sin separated me from God. And this is the cost of sin. The process was designed so that the one offering would actually feel the pain of the offering and that they would see as the smoke goes up and as every aspect of this animal is 100% completely consumed, it served as a a dual metaphor. And the first part of the metaphor is, is, is this. My sins have been completely burned up and they are gone forever. Never more will the Lord throw them back in my face. I am clean, innocent. There's a second aspect of this is is just as this animal is burned up, God, consume me. All of me is yours. This is just a, a beautiful moment that they will remember for the rest of their lives. Look at verse nine. The priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And if you're wondering how the Lord felt about all of this, he was thrilled with it. Why? Is the Lord hungry? Please say no. He's not hungry. Is he desperate? Is he broke? 
He's thrilled because with every burnt offering, a person gave their heart to him and recommitted their life to him. And what has he wanted the entire time? Their heart. So if you're reading this, it's the first time, let's say, um, you are a part of the nation of Israel and, and Moses comes to you and he says, I'm gonna read this law. You get to, you get to chapter one and you stop here and you're like, um, I, I have a question. What if I'm not rich enough to have a bowl? What about me? Do I matter? I love God. I want to be fully devoted to God. I, I, don't, I don't have all of this, and, I, and I, I don't have the money to go buy it from somebody. So what do people like me do when I don't have these kinds of resources? Look at verse 10. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, and, and here's what you're seeing already. If you don't have a bull, there are other options. From the sheep or the goats, but it's still the same requirements. A male without blemish. It's your first and it's your best. Verse 14, uh, you can just imagine this world where you're like, okay, I don't, I don't have a sheep. I don't have a goat. And verse 14 says, if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. Anybody can catch a bird. And if you can't catch a bird because your body won't let you, you've got kids and family who can You've got a neighbor who will go catch a bird for you so that you can have something to bring. What I love is that the Lord is not wanting the best. What he wants is your best so that nothing stands between you and him. So here's a question too. So how do I choose? Let's say I've got one bull, but I've got 50 goats. And really, the actual quantity of one bowl is equal to 10 goats. So why can't I just bring 10 goats? Because I really like my bowl. Your first, your best, your most valuable. And in our brain, like there's probably some math. And I can just imagine how this is all working in the mind of like, I don't know, some Jewish husband who's like, well, actually, if you think about it, it's a better investment if you keep the bowl and sacrifice these because long-term, the gains are gonna be better. Does, does God care about the money? He doesn't. What does he want? Your first, your best, your most valuable. Because if you give him the bowl and you have it, that is the most valuable thing in your possession. And if you'll give him that, you'll give him anything. Christian, what is the most valuable thing you have? It's your heart. The burnt offering was never about the money. It was always about the heart. Every, every offering exposed the heart condition of the giver. And, and my offering really answers two questions if I'm an Old Testament Jew. Here's the first one. God, do I value you more than myself? <laughs> Can we all just agree? We love ourselves a lot. We really love indulging. Like, I'd, I'd rather spend all my money on myself. Anybody else here? Am I the only one? Selfish? Good, all right. That's sin. The Lord knows it. And for the person who's going to rededicate and devote their life back to him, he's like, I get it. I hear it. Like, I hear it. You want to you devote yourself back to me, but you want to hold on to the stuff that you love more than me. That's not how this works. And so he's like, I want your first. I want your best. And the way they do this, it tells God who you value the most. But number two, God, do I trust you with my future? Because giving your first and your best, got it, you're most valuable. That hurts. And the Lord's like, I've never let you down. 
I've got you in the future. You need to trust me. But I need to know that you're not going to hold anything back because I want your whole heart. The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And by the time you get to really the last book in the Old Testament, I'd say the Jewish nation has upset God pretty thoroughly. Um, Malachi chapter, it's not a long book. It's worth, it's worth reading. If you're ever bored in a sermon, go listen to that one. Uh, Malachi, Malachi chapter one, verse 13. We're like right on the front end of this book, the first chapter. And here, here's, what, here's, what God's, here's what the Bible says. But you say, <clears throat> speaking of the offerings, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. <laughs> says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence. Pause. I'm going to go give a burnt offering and rededicate myself to the Lord. Sneak over to the neighbor's house, take their bowl, bring it over and sacrifice it to the Lord. Everybody watches you bring it over. You're like, me and the Lord are amazing. Dummy, you just stole that thing. You think the Lord is going to overlook that? Oh, then it goes on. He says, not just by violence, or you're bringing something that's lame and sick and you offer this as your offering? Are you kidding me? And then the Lord says this, shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat, check this out, who is a male in his flock, vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. And here's his, here's his like big reason, right? For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. Uh, come back to verse 15. And we're going to pay attention again to who does what. But this time it's focusing on the offering of the birds. Uh, the priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. Again, can we just get an amen that this is done and over with and you don't need to do this? Wait till the next one. Verse 16, you're really double amen. Oh my gosh. Uh, he, this is you now, shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes, he, this is you now, shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. Uh, in modern suburban life, we are very disconnected from the ugliness of, of really what happens in this world, the ugliness of death, the ugliness of butchery. Like, we love ourselves a good steak, but very few people want to be the ones to actually lay your head, hand on its head, kill it, flay it, butcher it, etc., drain the blood. Like, nobody really wants to do that, right? We just, we just love when it shows up. And so what, what modern culture does is it kind of hides us from all the messiness and the reality of life. And even as you read this, you're like, oh, that's such an American response too. Like a, but but in, it, really before the last couple hundred years, this was normal for people. Like people knew how to actually kill and butcher their own animals. That was a thing. That was normal. And so now this is all pretty, pretty strange to us. But, but here's what God wants. When all of this is set aside is God wants your heart. And, and he also wants these people to understand that there is a cost to the blessing you want. You want proximity to God. You want access to God. You want the blessing of God. You want to pray to God and have him hear you. Your sin has separated you from God. And that sin must be dealt with. One of the things I appreciate on this end of, we'll say, uh, Bible history is we have now the fullness of the Old Testament. We have all the scriptures that's closed. We have Jesus' life, death, resurrection. We have the writings of the apostles and the New Testament. We can kind of look back and now we, kind of, we can see how God does this. And here's what we learn. Every sin from every person that has ever existed 
will be justly dealt with. No exceptions. Nobody will ever get away with anything. And everyone's sin is dealt with in one of two ways. Number one, you pay for your sin in hell. Or number two, Jesus pays for your sin on the cross. Worldwide, throughout history, those are the options. And the Bible doesn't give a third. I wish it did. It would make everyone's life a whole lot easier. It make people like Christians more and like the Bible more, but it doesn't. And so you're left with these two options. And what I love is that God is like, access to me is through faith. This blood sacrifice of my son, I will joyfully apply it to your life. You have to come to me in faith. That's the rule. And that's hard, but it's easy for you and me. The challenging part is that Jesus had to go to the cross and bear in his body, soul, and emotions the full and total weight of the wrath of God for all sins of all people. We can't even begin to quantify what that experience must have been like. Verse 17, this is how the chapter ends. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So you, you could and should rightly ask, I think, the question, uh, isn't this just like really cruel to animals? Like, why would God create animals and then subject them to this? I have to be careful because in the first service, I had a few uh, oohs, like, to this section. So we have a tendency to humanize animals, to take all of our emotions and all of our fears and put them onto them. And so we love them and we cuddle them. We should, and that's great, but we somehow think that they feel equally to us what we feel to them. And can we agree? I'm just going to be as nice as I can. I love my dog. Love my chickens. Love them all. They're not people. Can we agree on that? Some of you are like, my cats. (laughs) (laughs) I see you. (laughs) They do not ponder the future like we do. They do not have eternal, future-oriented thoughts like we do. They don't have regret like we do, like maybe 1% of what we do, but that that ability to even just self-reflect, they don't have it. And I think one of God's greatest mercies to animals is that they don't really have the ability to understand slaughter. If you are walking into your own murder, Your legs will shake, you'll be filled with anxiety, it will be gut-wrenching, and it should be because you're made in the image of God. You have the ability to think and to ponder the what if and eternity and my family and everything. When a sheep is led to the slaughter, it has no idea what a knife is. It doesn't know what's coming next. When it feels pain, it's not thinking to itself, oh no, am I gonna die? What's gonna happen after death? None of it. And in God's mercy... They don't have to deal with all of the things that we would have to deal with. That's a hard thing, I think, for many people to get their head around. But again, this was temporary to prepare the way for the Messiah. And it is a reminder that sin is unbelievably costly. Even if you don't pay the price now, the price is going to be paid. As we end this, I have one simple so what. Give God the thing he has always wanted the whole time. What does God want 
more than sacrifices, more than burnt offerings. Psalm 51, verse 16 says this, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The burnt offering was useless if it wasn't accompanied by a broken heart over its sin. The only reason the burnt offering was effective was if the person came with a heart ready to be devoted to God. What has God always and ever wanted from his people? What has really every spouse always and ever wanted from their significant other? A whole, devoted heart. So there, there are three kinds of people, um, really in this room, I think, we just generally break this down. And there are some of you that as we've been going through Leviticus, you might be thinking to yourself, how is the Lord convicting me through Leviticus? A burnt offering that we don't even do anymore. What is this? But maybe the Holy Spirit is just kind of prompting you and saying, you've only given me half your heart. And, and I think typically when the Holy Spirit is moving you to a next step, he usually tells you at the right time what it is. You may not be aware of the thing you're sort of holding back from the Lord, but he'll show it to you. And, and when he does, here's the challenge. Get rid of it. Give it to him. Whatever stands between you and him, give it to him. And, and our God is the God of second chances over and over and over again. You'll never wear them out. There's, there's a second category of people here, and, and really you've actually maybe recently or a long time ago, you've kind of gone through this process, and, and right now you're like, Lord, I think you have my whole heart. If you told me to do anything, I would go do it. Like, yes, you struggle with sin. That's all real. That's, that's till you're dead. But like, like, Lord, you have it. So what is, what is your burnt offering? How do you apply this? And this applies to the first crew too, who you, you, you sort of want to, like, I need to re- rededicate my life back to the Lord. Hebrews 13, 15 actually tells us what the burnt offering is for us. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, then, let us continually, notice that word, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Continually means it's not a Sunday morning thing. It means you wake up and you continually say, I worship you. My life is yours. I will praise you and I will worship you. It's not a Sunday only thing. It's not just in your devotionals where you spend five to 10 minutes every other day with the Lord. It's something different where you say every day is all yours I am devoted, and when I mess up, because I will, amen? I throw myself back in the blood of Christ, and I come back for a second chance, and I bring another birth, a birth offering of worship and praise to him. Third category of people here are those who have never personally trusted in Christ. What I appreciate about God is that salvation, before Jesus and after Jesus, has always ever been in the same way. It has always ever been through faith. And before Jesus, here's what you would, you would do. You would actually believe that you're a sinner and confess that. You would accept a substitute sacrifice for your sins. And you would commit devotion to God. What's interesting is that's the same process now. We say when you, when you trust in Christ, here's what you need to do. Do you believe that you're a sinner? And are you willing to confess that? 
Are you willing to accept the substitute sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the God-man, for your sin and your behalf? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Are, are, are you willing to look at him and say, God, I'm sorry, I love you, my life is yours. That is called trusting in Christ. And anybody, anytime, anywhere, it doesn't matter how evil you've been, if God can forgive the Israelites after their debauchery in the, in the wilderness, I guarantee you, whatever it is, God can absolutely forgive you and anybody, anytime who personally trusts in Christ. Here's, here's just great news. Your sins are forgiven. You and God are reconciled. And, and, and here's where the new covenant, the, the post-Jesus stuff as opposed to the pre-Jesus stuff, gets way better. You now, the moment you trust in Christ, have full access to the presence of God, you can run straight into the tent. You don't need a priest. You have Jesus Christ, who is the perfect mediator once and for all and forever. That those who trust in Christ have full, permanent, complete access to God. You can pray to him, talk to him. Even when you struggle and sin, the blood of Christ covers you and you can go to him at any time. I think that's a pretty incredible deal. Jesus dies for your sins. You own it and personally trust in him. And if that is a decision that you have never made and today you're like, I, I know that I need to make that, tell somebody you came with. Uh, anybody up front, you see them, come talk to them and just tell them like, I, I, th- today I trusted in Christ. It would be our joy just to help you take a next step in your relationship with God. Phil Church, Leviticus chapter one, closed. Next week, it's going to be even more fun. Let's pray together. Father, love you, and I'm thankful that your word prepared the people of God for Jesus. And Jesus, I speak on behalf of every Christian in this room, and I say thank you um, that you made obsolete all the rules and regulations of the Old Testament, and Lord, we do not have to butcher our own animals. Praise God. But Lord, there's a cost to that, and that cost is your shed blood for our sins. So thank you. We love you. We're gonna celebrate communion and, and, and remember, and we're gonna sing, and we're gonna worship, and God, Lord, I pray that for each one of us as we worship you. It would be, even in this moment, a continual rededication of our life to you, our King, our God, our Savior. We love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.